This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Cavalry Audio. Welcome to the Murder Chronicles. I'm your host, Carolyn Osorio. You're listening to Episode 5, The Times Square Torso Killer. I don't know if this has ever happened to you as a fellow true crime fanatic, but I've had people, most recently my producer, Brandon Morgan, sort of raising his eyebrows when I talk about investigations that I'm interested in covering for the Murder Chronicles. This was after I sent him my show notes for this episode. He's like, you're a mom to five. How do you do this? Now, he said this because he's a dad and he has little girls. And to be fair, we had just recorded The Werewolf Butcher. If you haven't already listened, that's the double episode we just dropped on Jack Spillman. And I totally get what he was saying. This week's episode, which chronicles the crimes of Richard Cottingham, the so-called Times Square torso killer, especially on the heels of the Jack Spillman investigation, both of whom are sexual sadists who hated women and girls. It's a lot to take back to back, even if you're not a parent. But unlike Spillman, there isn't a chance in hell that Cunningham, who's been behind bars since 1980, is ever getting out of prison. And that was a huge motivating factor for me in tackling the Spillman case, was the idea that this guy could ever get out of jail. That's terrifying. So you might be asking yourself, why now with Richard Cottingham? And it's because there are some shocking new developments that are happening right now that I think you'll care about. Especially after you hear from Darlene, who after 50 years is finally finding out that Richard Cottingham murdered her mother when she was just three years old in 1968. I was just like in shock, but happy, you know, that finally we're getting somewhere. We have an answer. There's a DNA match. They also said besides the DNA, they also had, you know, we're building a strong case. And um, and I was just so grateful and thankful and, and hopeful again. Frozen over cold cases are having their day in the sun in part because of the work of another daughter whose mother was also a victim of Richard Cottingham, Jennifer Weiss. And Jennifer has done what some might say is the unthinkable, befriending the serial killer who murdered her mother. Here's a cut from Jennifer from an interview from NJ.com. Everybody deserves to be forgiven for things in life. The magnitude of what he did is unfathomable but i became friends with richard for my mother's sake and for my quest i desperately wanted to find dita's skull and that is the driving force behind what i'm doing whether or not he's telling the truth or not we are getting bits and pieces of the truth i'm doing this for the mothers who lost their daughters and my own mother begging the question what's a person Specifically, the daughter of one of Cottingham's victims willing to do to get justice. Today, Richard Cottingham is old and sick, a stark contrast to his younger days when he was hunting women and young girls, feeding off the terror in his victims' eyes. But now, Cottingham could pass for a low-rent mall Santa. His seemingly harmless facade is the stuff of nightmares when you know what he's done. Something Jennifer Weiss and Peter Vronsky, I'm sure, never forget during their sessions in prison with Cottingham. They have had meetings with uh, with Cottingham and and believe that they have uh, some responsibility for his willingness to uh, to help uh, with these cold cases. Peter Vronsky is a uh, is a is a criminal a historian who uh, specializes in, in crime. And Jennifer is, as you said, she was the uh, daughter of, of one of his victims. But they are meeting with him and taking whatever they find, I understand, to uh, you know the appropriate authorities. For more than three years, Jennifer and Peter have visited Cottingham in prison over 30 times. 
Now, I would have loved to have interviewed Peter Vronsky and Jennifer Weiss for the show, but unfortunately, they declined. But Peter did send me this email. Hi, Carolyn. This is currently a rapidly unfolding case Jennifer and I find ourselves in the middle of with numerous confessions we are facilitating. We are not really able to interview on it other than the few sound bites we have given to media to get other jurisdictions smelling the coffee. Maybe further down the line. You can stay in touch with me and Jennifer. He gives his email address and says that he regularly checks his email, which he does. I can definitely say that, and we'll get more to that later. But I did read a feature in Rolling Stone magazine, which did a really good job of kind of setting the stage for how this very unusual relationship between Peter, Jennifer, and Richard Cottingham came to be and how it works when they are all in the same interview room together. So what it sounds like is that Jennifer and Peter sort of worked out a good cop, bad cop routine that they established to get Cottingham basically in the mood to talk about his many unsolved crimes. Peter plays the role of the Pied Piper, playing notes of nostalgia as he leads the old man down memory lane with his descriptions of a bygone New York from the 60s and 70s. You know, the best delicatessens in Manhattan, for example, all of which is a primer to jog his memory for what he was doing in between sexually torturing and murdering young women and girls when he was a serial killer on the prowl in Times Square in New Jersey. Jennifer isn't so much the bad cop as the conscience in the room. And even though it's just gross to say she's the eye candy, Cottingham has become besotted by and emotionally dependent on her. He wants to make her happy. And somehow she's been able to compartmentalize this repulsive knowledge because she's fueled by the larger mission of doing whatever it takes, even if it means befriending a serial killer who didn't just murder her mother back in 1969, but he stole her identity. Cottingham took the, the extreme measures to hide this crime by removing the heads and the hands of these two women one of whom has never been identified, and discarding those body parts in places only Mr. Cottingham would know. And that's that's a part of this, all, this story also that uh, is a mystery uh, because it's, it's, uh, it's known to him if he can remember, and he has a pretty good memory. Jennifer is looking to restore her mother, and she needs Cottingham to do that. But she also wants to help other victims of Cottingham, whose cases have gone unsolved for decades, that have been sitting around collecting dust and hopefully a bit of resolution for their families, as was the case for Darlene's mom, Diane Cusick, whose murder Cottingham had sealed away in his head for decades. How many more crimes is he responsible for? It's not finished yet. It's still a possibility. There are some who believe that this uh, Richard Cottingham may be responsible for a number of other crimes, a, num a number of other murders. Uh, he's confessed to two. He's been convicted of 10 others. And uh, the, the story goes on. He's, he's not in good health, being held in a forensic facility where uh, it's, it's named the Ann Klein Forensic Facility in Trenton, New Jersey. So we'll get to the new developments after we chronicle Richard Cottingham's known crimes. Fortunately, today, we have the benefit of knowing some of his crimes. But for the most part, as they were happening, despite many of his victims coming forward after being attacked and actually surviving him, police in both New York and New Jersey were sort of left holding the bag. There were all these horrendous crimes against women that clearly had a signature, but they weren't strung together until after Cottingham was caught on May 22nd, 1980. What do you know? In May of 1980, he was back at that a place called the Quality Inn, which was a motel in the Hasbro Heights. He had kidnapped a prostitute from New York and brought her there. And uh, that made news because he was arrested. Once that happened, law enforcement across multiple jurisdictional lines started seeing him with fresh eyes. And in short order, he became the prime suspect in many cases that up until that incredible arrest in 1980, they just had no idea that they had a prolific serial killer on the loose. Because he was hiding behind the mask 
of a hometown New Jersey boy. Just a regular working stiff, it's this ability to hide in plain sight, wearing a mask of normality, which was something that he'd been doing for a long time. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The 1964 senior yearbook photo of Richard Cottingham shows an average-looking kid with spiffy hair. The young man wears a devious smirk. In hindsight, it's the only tell that something was going on behind his mask. For this episode, I interviewed journalist and private investigator Rod Leith, who wrote the book The Torso Killer. Most of my professional life has been spent uh, in investigations in New York. I was also a journalist here in New Jersey, a general assignment reporter, an investigative reporter with a paper called The Record in Bergen County. Rod says that Richard Cottingham's family moved from the Bronx, which is one of the five boroughs in the city, to the Jersey suburb in 1958 when Richard was in the seventh grade. As a kid, Cottingham was described as a blondish, blue-eyed boy who became obsessed with carrier pigeons. When the family moved to the Jersey side, Richard attended Catholic school, but he wasn't quick to make friends. His mother was described as a housewife, his father an executive for Metropolitan Life Insurance Company in New York City. At his public high school, Cottingham was low profile. He ran track, had some friends— but was pretty much a loner, a face lost in the crowded halls. When he graduated, he wasn't interested in going to college, so his dad greased the wheels for his son to work at MetLife's huge data center. Richard had shown an aptitude for computers, and so he sought out extra courses to beef up that expertise. Like his father, he commuted into the city during the work week while he lived at home with his parents. A year and a half later, he sort of turned the screws on his old man when he left MetLife and secured a higher-paying position at Blue Cross Blue Shield in their computer department in 1966. He changed jobs, but he still commuted to the city. And in the coming years, Cottingham grew to be a valuable employee. He requested to work the swing shift from 4 to 11 p.m., and he was described as a workhorse, easily able to complete the work of two people which gave him plenty of time to roam the streets of the Big Apple, preying on women, learning the lay of the land as he cruised Times Square and Manhattan's Lower East Side. Remember, the Times Square of today looks completely different from back in the late 60s and 70s, when prostitution was heavily regulated by the mob and promoters, or so-called pimps. Times Square was like his backyard. Times Square was, uh, was ugly, dingy, dirty, he knows the area. He, he, walks, he walks the area. Even to this day, only Cottingham really knows when he committed his first crime. But in October of 1969, he was charged and convicted of DUI while getting up to no good in the city. He spent 10 days in jail and was fined $50. It's obvious now, but he was the kind of serial killer who was adept at living a double life. In May of 1970, he married his girlfriend, Janet. Together, they moved into the Ledgewood Terrace apartment complex in Little Ferry, which wasn't far from his childhood home. And it's around this time, on paper, that Cottingham begins ramping up. Despite making a decent living as a computer operator, in August of 1972, Cottingham was busted for shoplifting at a department store and was charged with the crime. He graduated in terms of his... uh... Uh, criminal activity from 1969 to to 1974. There were two or three incidents, beginning with the DWI, and then he was arrested for robbery and sodomy. He was arrested for uh, unlawful imprisonment. In both of those cases, though, these were New York cases, it was, there was a dismissal. It resulted in a dismissal. In the city, Cottingham had spent years learning the rhyme and rhythm of the streets. It was all about perfecting his lure as a quote-unquote nice John looking to buy sex. He carried a wad of cash that he'd flash at prostituted women. 
But sex workers weren't his only targets. He was also able to feign being the nice guy to to essentially all women and young girls that he could get into his clutches. He used two different motor vehicles, uh, and he kept these drugs in in the car, usually in the trunk. Wow. So they were ready. They were ready and handy if he needed them for whatever plying plying these women or seducing them. Richard Cottingham was able to fly under the radar after a series of extremely violent crimes against prostituted women that raised alarm bells with NYPD detectives in 1973 and 74. Two separate women came forward, roughly six months apart, and they both described harrowing stories that went beyond the often violent encounters with Johns. Both women described a similar situation that DeJohn gave off a polite vibe, that he showed off a wad of cash. A price was agreed upon, but then he asked her if she would get into his vehicle, saying he just wanted to grab a drink at a bar first, and there, unbeknownst to them, he slipped a barbiturate into their glass. Cottingham made sure that they left the establishment while the woman was still able to walk back to his car. And both women would recall slipping in and out of consciousness as he drove over the George Washington Bridge to the Jersey side. Once in the motel room, he would either tie her up or get handcuffs around her wrists, and she would be tortured, just beaten and sexually assaulted. For some, his victims would never wake up. The quote-unquote lucky survivors would come to later after he was in the wind. They'd been physically tortured in a motel room, or worse, left on a sewer grate or a parking lot or in a ditch on the side of the road with only a vague memory of the man who picked them up and then drove them over a bridge out of the city. There were women who uh, were caught by him and kidnapped by him who were able to get away. Basically, he let them go. His reasoning uh, for letting them go is he basically was uh, got what he was after. He would incarcerate them, put them through bondage, and uh, basically, uh, those women who were able to, uh, who were lucky enough to, to escape, basically, he, he's, he, had, he had satisfied himself uh, with what he was after. NYPD detectives were struck by a particular detail. The guy had stolen their inexpensive jewelry. And this was important because why steal cheap jewelry? Why would a John do this? The behavior raised red flags because a John taking the inexpensive jewelry that belonged to his victims meant that they could be dealing with a serial rapist looking for keepsakes of his crimes. A detective went around to low-rent motels, canvassing the streets, speaking with people, asking if they'd had any contact with a suspect that was around 5'10", muscular build with reddish sort of sandy-colored hair. That's the description both the victims had given of the suspect. And surprisingly, it wasn't a waste of time. A guy described as being from New Jersey, matching that description, kept coming up. And thanks to Cottingham's previous arrest for a DUI, his mugshot was in the system in New York, and it was included in a series that was shown to a survivor who picked Richard Cottingham out of that photo montage. But ultimately, both cases were dropped against Cottingham because the witnesses were too frightened to come forward. He was arrested for robbery and sodomy. He was arrested for uh, in, in unlawful imprisonment. In both of those cases, though, these were New York cases, It was there was a dismissal. It resulted in a dismissal, a very, very heavy schedule. And the police uh, brought these... Uh, matters to their attention and could not substantiate them. Cottingham was free to go on with his life. And in February of 1975, he moved from the Ledgewood Terrace apartment complex in Little Ferry. And there is a reason I'm being really specific about the name of that complex. So stick a pin in that for later. But by this time, Janet had already given birth to one child, and they moved their growing family from the Ledgewood Terrace apartment complex to the nearby community of Lodi, where they rented a three-bedroom home. And a month later, Janet gave birth to their second child, a baby boy. In October of 1976, Janet gave birth to their third and last child, a little baby girl. Cottingham was callously cruel to his wife during their marriage, which included disparaging her body literally refusing to have sex with her after the birth of their third child. But on the outside, 
He appeared to be a loving, if not private, doting father and husband. From the outside looking in, he looks like the average Joe. Uh, He's got a little house, uh, a family. He's driving into New York, uh, commuting, parking his car uh, like most many, many, many others do and and walking uh, to his uh, place of, of employment. You know, he looks like an average guy. And if you if you know criminal investigations, when we're talking about crossing jurisdictions like this, he's living in New Jersey, working in New York. The law enforcement people in New York aren't necessarily uh, working closely with the law enforcement people in New Jersey. So he's had these incidents in New York. New Jersey is not really aware of him at all. In fact, if they're aware of him at all, they're they're only aware that he's a member of the community. I knew the law enforcement people in Lodi. I knew the law enforcement people in Bergen County. They were not aware of Cottingham. On December 16, 1977, the body of Marianne Carr was found at the Ledgewood Terrace apartment complex. If you'll remember, that was the same one that Cottingham had moved from nearly three years before. Marianne's feet and hands were bound. She'd been strangled. At the time, New Jersey police didn't connect Cottingham to the crime. Why would they? It was a huge apartment complex. He didn't live there anymore. In fact, he'd moved from the apartment in early 1975. Marianne was a married nurse. There was nothing connecting Cottingham to her. And without any leads in the case, it went cold. Cottingham attacked two more women in September and October of 1978. They both survived being drugged, brutalized, and left for dead. But by April of 1979, Janet was fed up with Richard Cottingham. He was an absent father and husband. He came and went as he pleased. And even when he was home, he pretty much retreated to a room that he kept under lock and key from Janet and the children. No one was allowed inside. Janet filed for divorce. He describes himself as being somebody who would want to go to this this room to be alone, to be away from his wife, to be away from his children. Basically, he's there savoring uh, his... his, uh, his goodies, the goodies from his crimes. He's hidden, hidden. When the search warrants were issued, you know, they were able to find uh, pieces of rings and other kinds of jewelry that they were able to trace to the victims. Uh, So there was no question he had this other side to him. He liked to um, nurture and and to uh, finesse over, um, you know, the, uh, the victims some of them murder victims and some of them kidnapping victims. Did his wife say what she thought of this room or was it locked and she never got in? Like you- she was not she was not permitted. She yeah. was not permitted she was not permitted into that room. Um, he was out he was away from the home, from the house for many, many hours of the day, but she was not permitted. He kept it locked. He was she was not permitted to go into that room. And you know, she herself uh, describes in in her court statement that, you know, he's he's away from the house for for any for an enormous an enormous an inordinate number of hours uh, during the day. Supposedly working from four to eleven, he would show up at home as late as five or four or five o'clock in the morning. So he's got a lot of time span here in which he's out there actively involved in some of these other activities. Um, so it was a, a very sad, very sad, uh, sad lifestyle that that uh, Janet and the these three children uh, were living. It was Christmas time, 1979, when Cottingham planned a horrific double murder, which would later be described as New York's most salacious crime of the decade, which says a lot coming from the city that never sleeps. On December 2nd, 1979, New York City firefighters were called to battle a blaze at 515 West 42nd Street at the Travel Inn Motor Lodge on the fourth floor. A motel employee had made a desperate call for help. They thought there could be someone still in the room. Toxic smoke billowed from the open door of room 417, forcing a firefighter to army crawl on the floor. Thick smoke clouded his vision but he thought he could make out a body lying on a twin bed 
He pulled the woman into the hall and was preparing to administer CPR. And in fact, the fireman described the fact that there was a woman on the bed and he was prepared to uh, assist her with mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, but found that she had no head. The flames were doused and the smoke cleared. And it was then that another grisly discovery was made. It was the nude body of another dead woman. She too had been decapitated, her hands removed. It was clear to authorities that the person responsible for the murders had gone to egregious measures to destroy evidence. Not only had he dismembered the women, but he'd also poured a flammable liquid over them, setting them on fire. The murderer wiped the room clean of fingerprints, and he'd also made sure to take the murder weapon and the dismembered body parts. During autopsy, it was determined that the heads and hands had been removed post-mortem, which was the reason that there wasn't a trace of blood found in the room, which left investigators wondering how would they identify the victims without fingerprints, a face, or dental records. And investigators pondered why had the killer left behind two distinct piles of clothing in the bathtub, folded carefully, each pile topped with a pair of shoes? It was obvious the clothes belonged to the victims, as they had both been found naked. Motel employees were quick to tell detectives that a man had rented the room under the name Carl Wilson with a New Jersey address on Wednesday, November 29th. They described the man as elusive. It wasn't a high-end hotel where customer service was paramount, but even so, they said they rarely saw him outside of the hotel room, and the Do Not Disturb sign had been hung on the door handle for the nearly four days he had rented the room. It was easy to confirm that both the name and address were fake. A composite sketch of the suspect was put together based on witness interviews. White male, around 35, with a build that appeared strong at 5'10", 175 pounds, with brown hair, and he was clean cut. But that was about it. That's all they had. And the murders were just so shocking. Press was all over the manhunt. And the murderer was dubbed the Times Square torso killer. A task force was assembled. Divers began searching waterways around Manhattan for the dismembered parts. They would need them if they had any hope of identifying the victims. Nothing was found. So detectives got creative. In a chilling recreation, they dressed mannequins in the women's outfits that had been left behind in the bathtub. They called a press conference, and those mannequins were displayed. The public was called to help. Did anyone recognize the clothing? Six weeks after the murders, a tip came in identifying one set of clothing as belonging to a 22-year-old woman from Trenton, New Jersey, and her name was Dita Gudarzi. Now, Dita was the mother of a four-month-old, a baby girl. Remember, I had mentioned Jennifer Wise earlier in the show, and this was her mother, It was believed that Dita was a prostituted person. However, detectives weren't able to establish a link between Dita and the other unidentified victim. And as details of the case continued to make salacious headlines, women were fearful. And investigators were no closer to finding the killer. Although no one knew it at the time, the manhunt for the Times Square torso killer seemingly had no effect on Richard Cottingham. On May 4, 1980, the body of Valerie Street was found at the Quality Inn Motel in Hasbrook Heights. That's on the Jersey side. Her body reflected the living hell she'd endured at the hands of Cottingham, who was long gone by the time a motel employee found her body stuffed between mattresses. On May 12, 1980, another woman, Pamela Weisenfeld, was found alive. She'd been drugged, beaten, sexually assaulted, and dumped in a parking lot in Teaneck, New Jersey. Then, three days later, back in the city, on May 15, 1980, Jean Rayner's body was found stabbed, mutilated, and strangled in the Hotel Seville near Fifth Avenue. We know now that all of these crimes were committed by Richard Cottingham. He was the Times Square torso killer, the most wanted man in New York City and Jersey, too. Nobody knew it but him. But all of that is about to change big time. Eighteen-year-old Leslie was running away. She left Washington State via Greyhound bus. 
eventually landing at the bus terminal near Times Square early in the morning of May 18, 1980. Leslie was broke and beyond vulnerable. She had no idea as she sat on a bench at the station, afraid, alone, that she was being watched by a sex trafficker. The bus terminal was a place that pimps hung around looking for vulnerable girls new to the city who were alone. A pimp watching Leslie walked up to her. He was smooth-talking, very practiced at knowing exactly what to say to earn trust in an instant. He offered a heartfelt smile and an earnest invitation for breakfast. By the end of the day, Leslie had been manipulated into prostitution, forced to make this random guy who had bought her a meal money. Over the next three days, Leslie became desperate to get away. She just wanted to go back home to Seattle. And on her fourth night, she thought that she might have met a man who would be able to help her out of this nightmare. A car pulled up next to Leslie where she was standing on the street. The man said his name was Tommy. He asked if she'd be willing to hop into his car and join him for a drink at a nearby bar. But Tommy, compared to all the men she'd been forced to be with, seemed like a nice guy. He was older in his mid-30s, and he bought her a drink and listened to her as she describes what she'd been through. And it's here that Tommy offered to take Leslie across the bridge, away from the big city pimps who were keeping her hostage. Tommy's plan included an offer to take her to a bus depot in New Jersey, where he would help her get a bus back to Washington State. Leslie believed he wanted to help her as he talked about his kids, his house. They even stopped off for a meal. And for the first time, Leslie was feeling hopeful. As they ate, Tommy made it clear that he was after sex too. And as the sun began to rise, they settled on $100. And the place he took her to was the Quality Inn. Remember, this was the same motel where he'd taken Valerie Streets, whose body had been discovered just a few weeks before. At first, Tommy parked in the back of the motel, and after they checked into a room, he told Leslie that he'd be back in a minute. He just wanted to move his car around to the front, where it would be safer. But when he came back to the room, he had a briefcase and a bottle of whiskey. Tommy offered Leslie a back rub, and she lay down on her stomach. Suddenly, he was on her, his weight crushing her small frame, as he handcuffed her to the bed and began brutalizing Leslie for hours. A staff person at the hotel heard her and alerted the, uh, the desk people uh, that there was something going on. Employees, no doubt, still shell-shocked after the discovery of Valerie Ann Street's body in one of their motel rooms. They weren't taking any chances. They called the room and asked if everything was okay. Meantime, another employee was already knocking on the door, saying they wanted to speak with the girl. Cottingham forced Leslie up to the door, told her to say that everything was okay. But what he didn't know was that police had already been called. They were on their way. A police officer pulled into the Quality Inn Motel after 9 a.m. on a Thursday morning. He spotted a suspicious man leaving with a briefcase. The officer told him to stop. And the man said something to the effect of, Hey, I was with a sex worker and I got scared, so I bailed. Which didn't work because Leslie was found handcuffed to the bed. And inside Cottingham's briefcase, there were handcuffs, pills, studded leather collars, a leather gag, and in his pockets, he had adhesive tape and a switchblade. Cottingham's arrest at the Quality Inn Motel for his attack on Leslie was pivotal. Everything that Leslie had been through was so similar to so many of those unsolved crimes in both New York and New Jersey. We're not just talking about murders, by the way. We're talking about, you know, he he was brought into lineups uh, to face uh, other victims who uh, were victims of him as far as kidnapping and abuse and assault. Um, there was a number of those women out there as well who fortunately uh, escaped uh, with their lives. It begins to add up. These crimes are against women. Investigators from New Jersey sifted through old hospital records, searching for victims who had come forward. Seemingly unrelated reported unsolved sexual assaults were now being put under a microscope. Meantime, circumstantial evidence was beginning to stack up against Cottingham in the city. On August 14, 1980, Cottingham was charged with the murders of Dita Gudarzi, Jane Doe, 
the unidentified woman who was found beside Dita and Mary Ann Jean Rayner, who'd been murdered at the Hotel Seville near Fifth Avenue. But first, Cottingham had to account for the charges in New Jersey, where he was indicted on 21 counts on September of 1980. Cottingham has been described as arrogant and entitled, but authorities also believed he was cunning. During the investigation, detectives discovered that Cottingham sort of hedged his bets, if he was ever caught. Sometimes he would tell a prostituted person during the negotiation that he had a predilection for kinky sex, like he was anticipating the possibility of getting caught, so he would have an out. Uh, hey, I told her I liked it rough, which is exactly what he did in court. He himself uh, later testified, you know, on, a, on his own behalf and, uh, and described how he thought that uh, he was getting what he paid for. Uh, you know, by incarcerating her, by punishing her, by handcuffing her, by doing the things that uh, aroused him and got him excited. He was fascinated, he admitted, for many years, fascinated with the idea of imprisoning uh, young women. But ultimately, he was convicted on 15 of the 20 counts, and he was sentenced to almost 200 years. But New Jersey wasn't finished with Cottingham yet. And he went to trial again for the murder of Marianne Carr. Remember, she was the nurse who had been murdered. Her body had been found near the parking lot of the apartment building where Cottingham had lived three years before her murder. But back then, he hadn't even been a person of interest in that case. Cottingham would be convicted of Marianne's murder and sentenced to another 25 years to life in October of 1982. In the end... He was also convicted of the murders of Dita Gudarzi, Jane Doe, and Marianne Jean Rayner in July of 1984, where he was sentenced to an additional 75 years to life. Richard Cottingham has been in prison since 1980, and though he'll never get out of prison, he still hasn't accounted for all of his crimes. Until recently, getting anything out of him has been like pulling teeth. Nothing to gain as far as uh, leniency is concerned. He's where he is forever. There's there's nothing in it for him as far as that's concerned. It would only be to satisfy and answer questions to help alleviate and bring peace of mind to the families of victims. You think he cares enough about them that that's what he would that that he would do that? You think that's his motivation? No. Yeah, I don't think so. You know, it's amazing what serial killers or just prisoners will do just to have conversations or a cheeseburger or lead people along, mess with their heads, give them some information. You know, it's attention, especially mm -hmm. if he's like dying. He's right. on his, you know, people do act differently when they know the jig's going to be up here pretty soon, which it sounds like in his case, it, it will be. That's a, an interesting point in terms of what's motivating him. And I think largely what motivates a man like Cottingham is the attention. He craves the attention. He always has. And, uh, I think he's getting the attention both from these uh, people who are civilians, uh, Peter Vronsky and Jennifer Weiss, but he's also getting attention from uh, certain members of law enforcement. Peter Vronsky is a criminal historian. He's also the author of American Serial Killers, The Epidemic Years, 1950 to 2000. Jennifer Weiss and Peter Vronsky have teamed up to speak with Cottingham in an effort to get the serial killer to confess to all of his crimes. And although it may be disgusting to think about his crush on Jennifer Weiss and that attention he gets from her as a motivation for giving up the details of his crimes, the fact remains that the work that she and Peter are doing is helping others, like Darlene Altman, whose mother, Diane Cusick, was murdered on February 17th, 1968, when she was just three years old. And when I talked to Darlene, she shared with me that she has been haunted by her mother's murder for five decades. I probably blocked things out because they were too painful. So I really, in, in those early years when all this happened, I have no memories of it. I have no memories of my mom, uh, which, which bothers me. It became kind of difficult. Diane was a young mother in the process of getting a divorce, and she'd moved back in with her parents with her three-year-old daughter, Darlene. Her and I had moved back in with my grandparents, her parents. She was a dance teacher. I'm told that she was like a real spitfire, a lot of fun, always smiling, happy. That's, that's about pretty much all I know. <laughs> 
Diane needed a new pair of shoes for an upcoming recital, and so she made a quick trip to the Green Acres Mall in Valley Stream. But when Diane didn't return, her worried parents went looking for her. The mall parking lot at that time of night was a ghost town. The only car was Diane's. It looked abandoned. You can imagine the dread rising in their throats as they pulled up to Diane's car. Inside, they saw the unthinkable. Diane's lifeless body duct-taped in the back seat of her own car. As a mother and now grandmother, Darlene just can't imagine what it was like for her grandparents to find Diane. I mean, you know, now being a mom, I, I, I couldn't imagine, you know, which is why I can't blame them for anything that they did because they were living through this grief probably forever. I don't think that would ever go away. The circumstances of the murder and sexual assault of Darlene's mom was just so traumatic for everyone. After it happened, Darlene's grandparents and her mother's brothers just never wanted to speak of Darlene again because it was just too painful. She was never talked about, you know, but everybody knew. I knew everyone knew, but no one said anything, you know? <laughs> and it's like, why? Why are we living this big secret, you know? And my grandparents became my parents. My uncles became my brothers. I mean, why couldn't they just remain who they were already at that time in my life? Why did everyone have to, you know, take on a new role and pretend, you know, like, like it didn't happen? So Darlene absolutely wants to make clear that her family are the best. But when she became an adult, what had happened to her mom, the details of the murder, and also the burying of her memory, and feeling in many ways like her mother's replacement, was a heavy, heavy burden. So later on in life, when I was sitting in a therapist's office, (laughs) trying to figure this all out. I mean, I suffered from major anxiety, major depression. Um, I don't know. uh, I was even recently diagnosed as as having uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and you know it it, it caused a lot of things and 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 I don't you know like when I talk about it I don't want people to think that my grandparents were not good people I mean they they were the best they really were and but they were dealing with this you know losing their daughter and being the ones to find her I mean I get that and this is the way that they felt that it was best to handle it not meaning to do any harm to anybody, you know, to me or anything. Um, So I always want to make that clear when I speak about this, that I don't, you know, I don't blame them for anything. I mean, they, they, they were great. Darlene says in her early 20s, she sought therapy to deal with the emotions that she was carrying. It helped me. It helped me see different things about myself and understand things. And just, just to have someone to talk to and get it out, you know, it just helps. Therapy helped Darlene get the courage to research her mom's case. And though she wouldn't find out who murdered her mother, it was clear that the detectives who worked the case had preserved every shred of evidence and had left no stone unturned at the time of her death. I had gone to the library and gotten, you know, off a microfiche years ago, uh, copies of the original articles that were being printed over those days. And I know that they really, really worked the case hard. They were thorough. The police had a van, you know, with a loudspeaker at, at the mall, you know, asking anyone if they had information and flyers were being handed. I mean, they really, really worked hard on the case, but it just, you know, they couldn't solve it. Darlene's courage continued to grow and eventually she reached out to the police department in charge of her mother's case. She wrote a letter sometime in the late 90s, and a detective read her letter. He was so moved by it that he asked his boss if he could start working the cold case. I just remember his kindness, and I remember feeling somebody gets it. He understands. He can feel my pain, you know what I mean? And he wanted to do something, and and he did. He tried, and he kept in touch with me, and then all of a sudden, I didn't hear from him, and I was like, oh, that's unusual. I haven't heard from Detective Bilotti lately. Let me give a call. And then I was told he went out on early retirement because he was ill. And he wound up, I believe, passing away like a year or two later. Detective Bellotti had never shared with Darlene his cancer diagnosis, and he passed away around 2005. It was so sad because not only did I feel bad for him, but I also felt bad for myself. I was like, oh, I had some hope with him, you know, and now now I'm back to zero again. 
And so then I would call there and ask if anyone was working on the case. And, you know, no, nobody knew me personally. He knew me from going in there, from reading my letter, from sitting down with me. I mean, must have talked maybe for, I'm guessing, like two hours. He, I was there for quite a while and, you know, just explaining my whole life to him. And, he, you know, then, then I would call and, and they would be like, well, unless you could provide us with any information, any leads to follow, the, the case is, you know, pretty much stagnant. And I'm like, I was not even four. What am I supposed to tell you? You know, <laughs> like I don't know. I'm coming to you for help. So, you know, no one really took it seriously uh, after that. Many years went by without any answers. And then suddenly, in a whirlwind, recently, Darlene was contacted by the detective working her mother's case. And she found out that serial killer Richard Cottingham's DNA had matched the suspect DNA found on her mother. That was at the beginning of the year, February, is when Detective Finn contacted me and told me they had been working on the case since June of 2021, which I had no idea. And then he was very nice and he kept me in the loop. And, and he's the one who called me and told me that, you know, who it was and they got a DNA match. And then Friday, I get this call saying that there's going to be a, a you know, a virtual indictment done. And by Tuesday, I was in New York. <laughs> So it all happened so quickly, you know. Darlene had never heard of Richard Cottingham, had never heard of the Times Square torso killer, but she was overjoyed. Darlene says for so long, not knowing what had happened to her mother had consumed her. Every thought, you know, it's like, why? What happened? Who was it? Why did this happen? It's like the whys. You need the answer to the whys, you know. I try to just focus on, okay, after all these years, we're getting some justice. We're getting answers. And I try not to think about, you know, what she had to go through because there's no point in that, you know. I mean, of course, you know, I have quick thoughts of it and I just shoo them away. I'm like, no, no, don't have to think about that. She would also find out about the work being done by Peter Vronsky and Jennifer Weiss and how their work was the missing link to solving her mother's murder case. How she does it, I don't know. I give her so much credit. But she's doing it, you know, for, for the good of other cases, trying to get information out of him. And I believe he had made some comments about different places. Like, his memory is not that good either. Or either that or he's... I mean, because he's 75 and he's in bad health. So I don't know if he's just pretending he doesn't remember stuff or he really doesn't. But, you know, he, he'll give like little clues like oh i remember being near a drive-in well the mall green acres mall happens to have a drive-in movie theater right next to it you know so then the detectives would piece together this information that they were getting and also i believe another county uh, suffolk county had told them run, run your cases you know run their dna on on cases through such and such a period of time or whatever so i guess it was a combination of different things getting information they started focusing on it again in the indictment, Cottingham pled not guilty. But Diane Cusick's murder is the latest among others that Cottingham has given information about. In 2021, Cottingham confessed to the 1974 murders of two teenage girls, best friends who were just walking to the Garden State Mall. Cottingham saw an opportunity, kidnapped the girls, raped and tortured them at a hotel for three days before drowning them. He's starting to give up things. Uh, he did confess to these two, uh, these two murders, uh, Lorraine Marie Kelly and Mary Ann Pryor. He confessed, confessed to those. Those were 1974. Obviously, they've got him uh, talking. While Cottingham claims that he is responsible for up to 100 homicides, so far, authorities in New York and New Jersey have officially linked him to 12. And it's absolutely worth noting that many of the confessions have also come out of the hard work of detectives, particularly Bergen County Detective Robert Anzalotti, who's been diligently working with Cottingham since 2000 to get him to confess. And yet, he's still holding back. Despite the efforts of Jennifer Weiss to get him to tell her where he hid her mother's head and hands, as well as the other still unknown victim, Jane Doe. He won't give it up, or at least he hasn't yet. Where those body parts are is, as I said before, is still a mystery. They weren't brought back to his favorite room, you know, where he kept all these other articles of his crimes, uh, souvenirs of his crimes. But I was curious. 
With advances in DNA technology, couldn't they now find the identity of the second victim that Jane Doe found at the Travel in Motor Lodge through investigative genetic genealogy? I feel like we should be able to find out who the unknown victim is and restore her name and maybe some resolution for her family. And there's also the idea of a proper burial of these two women and, uh, and what happened what happened to that because their heads and hands were gone. Satisfying the, the, uh, the remaining descendants of these two women and having a, an appropriate uh, burial, these things happen. You know, there are burials that take place that, uh, you know, are memorial, uh, memorial burials of people that died years and years and years ago. It's up in his head somewhere. I reached out to the NYPD, asking them if they had done any recent DNA tests on Jane Doe to determine through genetic genealogy her identity, her family, and if they hadn't, where she had been buried. I haven't heard back. But I was so curious that I reached out to Peter Vronsky again. I figured he absolutely had to know. And thankfully, he responded with this. Carolyn, we cannot find her. She would not have been cremated as she was unidentified, and she should have been interred on Hart Island, New York's Potter's Field. But she is not showing up in their database, the way Dita Gudarzi, also buried on Hart Island, is showing up. One theory I heard is that she is still refrigerated at the ME's office, but I don't believe it. NYPD cannot find two-thirds of their case files from before 1990. A lot has been destroyed and lost. Forget clothes. They don't have the basic case files. Cottingham is offering up confessions, and they cannot find the case files to match the confessions. One thing about her, she had a rare blood type, something like only 4 or 8% of the population has. After this information, I again asked him for an interview, which he didn't respond So we're going to continue to monitor the developments in this case. But before we sign off, I wanted to extend another invitation to Peter Vronsky and Jennifer Wise to come on the show. So Jennifer and Peter, if you're listening, reach out to me. I'd love to speak with you about the amazing work that you're doing on this case. The Murder Chronicles is a Cavalry Audio production recorded live in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We're produced by Brandon Morgan and myself. Our executive producers are Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. Josh Windish edited and mixed this episode. Music by Soundstripe. For Cavalry Audio, I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Thanks for listening. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.